really careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in synagogues, and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your Holy Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, good morning. It's really lovely to be here, and uh, I hope you can hear me all right. I don't have the biggest voice, so I'll, uh, I'll try and use the microphone well. Uh, I was really touched by Sylvia's words. Uh, I do remember you from Crowhurst, I really do, but uh, I don't remember our conversation likewise, but I was really touched that um, it impacted you like that. That was lovely. And uh, I, we were here once before, I think about probably four or five years ago, and really enjoyed coming and being with you. So... Um, it's lovely to be able to come and share from God's word with you today. I don't know why God led me to this passage for you to, for today, but I did really feel strongly in my heart it was the right thing to share. So he knows all of you better, much better than I do. So I'm going to just bring what I've prepared and uh, trust that uh, he will be speaking to you through it in whatever way is appropriate for you. So let's just pray before we open this word. Heavenly Father, you know each one of us inside and out. You know what we need to hear from you this morning. So Lord, we pray that you will speak into our hearts, that you will give us open ears to hear what you would say to us this day. And Lord, please encourage us, build us up, and allow us to 
leave here today knowing that you have spoken to our very hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this passage is part of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, if you went back to the beginning of chapter 5, you would see that Jesus had sat down and gathered his disciples around him. And uh, over the next three chapters, chapter five, ch- 5 to 7, Jesus gave this teaching uh, on how to be disciples, how their discipleship should be lived out and how it would show forth in their lives. And the whole theme that runs through the whole sermon is living in righteousness. It began at the beginning with all the Beatitudes, and one of them was Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So clearly righteousness is something we should long for and strive after. But it's quite difficult sometimes to actually describe what that is. What is righteousness? And I found a quite helpful definition, which was that righteousness is having a right relationship with a righteous God, which is shown in us in right behavior, which reflects God's character. I'll read that again. So righteousness is having a right relationship with a righteous God, and it's shown in us in our right behavior, which reflects God's character. Now, to truly live in righteousness is not just an external matter of saying and doing the right things. It goes much deeper than that. It's a matter of our hearts and our minds and our motivations. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching his disciples how to live righteously in all sorts of different situations. And in today's passage, Jesus is addressing how to live righteously in our religious and our devotional practices. So he starts by first stating a principle. I don't know if you want to put up that first, those first few verses again. Um, verse 1 onwards would be quite helpful. Verse 1, anyway, would be good. Um, so verse 1, or you can follow it in your Bibles, of course. Uh, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Uh, Some other translations say, don't practice your acts of righteousness before men. Or they say, don't be careful not to make a show of your religion and your piety. Now, at first glance, this verse might seem a bit confusing, especially if you know your Bible and the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus seems to be contradicting himself from what he said in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he told the disciples to shine their light before men so that they would be seen and so that men would notice our good deeds and so on. But here in chapter 6, Jesus says, do not practice your righteousness in front of others. So we have to actually look really closely, and then when we do, we'll discover that the two verses don't actually contradict each other. There's a difference between them, and it comes in the motivation of the heart. The shine your light before men verse in chapter 5 tells us to do these things so that our good deeds will glorify our Father in heaven. Verse 1 of the chapter that we're looking at today tells us not to do these things in front of others when we do them in order to be seen by men. Can you see the motivation in those two verses is quite different. In chapter 5, the inner motivation for doing good is pure because it's to please and glorify God. Here in chapter 6, Jesus is talking about good deeds being done for a wrong reason. In other words, to please men and draw attention to oneself. So how do we know when we can allow our good deeds to be seen by others? 
Well, a good rule of thumb is to check out our motivations, check what, what we're feeling in our hearts, and then to hide what we're tempted to show and to show what we're tempted to hide. So resist and hide what we might be tempted to show off and to allow to be seen that which we would rather hide from modesty. And Jesus does want us to examine our hearts in all things, to have the right motivation in everything we do and say. Now, I will warn you, this is a very searching chapter because it does invite us to search our hearts, to ask ourselves questions, to examine our own motivations and shine a light on the heart attitudes that might be hidden behind what we do and say that might look all very pious and good on the surface. So I do want to encourage you as we start to dig in, say, I won't be surprised if you find this a hard message. I have to say, as I prepared it, I personally was really challenged on it too, as I've searched my own heart on some of the things that this chapter flags up. So Jesus is talking about the public religious life of the disciple. Now, we know that as we grow in faith and righteousness, God transforms us. He changes our hearts from the inside out. And we have to play our part in that too. So part of the process of him doing that in us means we have to be obedient. We have to gather together for worship. We have to learn from the scriptures and we need to encourage each other in our personal piety and devotion. But even in doing those things which are right and good, there are some dangers there. Because sometimes the motivation of our hearts becomes not to do these things so much to please God as to do them for the approval and praise of other people. And Jesus points out here that when that happens, God knows. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows our motivations and our desires. And we're only going to please him and get the praise and reward from him if our motivations are right in our religious um, uh, observance. So if our motivations are right and honoring to him. So Jesus has laid down the principle here not to do religious things for man's approval. And then he goes on to give three specific examples of what he means. And he takes three examples of Jewish religious practice. So he takes giving to the needy, praying and fasting. And in each case, he highlights the wrong behavior and motivations of the Pharisees and the pagans and contrasts their approach to the ideal approach and behavior and motivation of the real Christian disciple. And in each example, I expect you noticed in the reading, he uses a similar formula. So he says, when you give or pray or fast, do not do as the hypocrites do to be seen and honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give or pray or fast, do it in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We have to note that Jesus doesn't say if you give or pray or fast. He says when you do these things. So he assumes that they're going to be a natural and normal part of the devotional life of all Jews and Christians. So let's have a look at each of these examples. First of all, almsgiving. In Jewish life, giving to the needy was an expected part of religious life. Poverty was widespread and the Jews took very seriously their responsibility to provide for the poor and help the economically disadvantaged. And by Jesus' time, this giving alms or money to the poor had become known as doing mercy. And everyone who could 
did give to the poor as part of their religious expression. And there were large chests in the temple set aside for this purpose. And Jesus says here, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Now, trumpets were used on occasion to call worshippers to the temple for a fast or feast day. And on such occasions, the people did make special offerings. But here, Jesus is highlighting that tendency of the Pharisees to carry out their religious devotions in an ostentatious way. They wanted everyone to notice and applaud and admire them. So he paints this vivid picture of a pompous Pharisee sweeping through the streets on his way to put money in the special box at the temple or the synagogue or to take a gift to the poor. And in front of him march the trumpeters blowing a fanfare as they walk and trick quickly attracting a crowd to see him and praise him for doing such mercy. And Jesus says such people are hypocrites or that's what our English versions have translated as hypocrite. But the Greek word hypocrites actually has a rather different meaning. It translates as an orator or an actor on the stage, someone who's wearing a theatrical mask, who's acting a part, who's treating the world as a stage on which they play a role. Now, we all like going to the theatre, and there's nothing wrong with that. And um, in the theatre proper, there's nothing wrong with people acting a role. We go to the theatre to be entertained by them, and everybody knows that the drama is acted and not real, and that the actors are really very different people from those they portray on the stage. Ian and I were involved in the amateur dramatic world for many years and we knew lots of the real people behind the um, villains and heroes that were portrayed on the stage. There's nothing wrong with acting in that sort of context. But what Jesus was highlighting was people who were acting a role in order to deceive people. Taking that religious activity of giving to the poor, something that was meant to be real and genuine, and turning it into a piece of make-believe a theatrical drama in front of an audience, and all for the sake of applause. So Jesus says this is hypocrisy. He says these people will get the reward they've been seeking, the thing they really wanted, the admiration and applause of men, but that's all the reward they'll get, because God knows the secrets of our hearts, and he's not going to praise or reward those who are doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Our motivation matters to God. He doesn't want us doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, thinking about this, I was reminded here of the little girl who won a prize in her Sunday school competition for memorising Bible verses. And she won a £2 coin. And when her Sunday school teacher told her mum, the little girl said very proudly to her mum, and I put all of it in the offering basket. And the teacher said, well, I'm sure God will be very pleased with you. Yes, said the little girl. Now perhaps he'll let me do all the things I really want to do. She was doing the right thing with her money for the wrong reason. And Jesus says to his disciples and to us, don't do this. Don't be like the hypocrites, like the Pharisees who give ostentatiously. When you give to the poor, do it in secret. And he exaggerates again when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that's impossible, of course. We know both hands are joined to the same body. Of course, your left hand's going to know what your right hand's doing. But 
I guess we all understand the principle. Do it in secret. Don't tell others. And in a sense, don't even talk to yourself about it. Our giving should be motivated by our compassion for the disadvantaged or a desire to support charitable work. And along with that desire to do God's will, we shouldn't have any sense of self in it, no self-consciousness or self-serving in our giving. And we're not to blow our own trumpet about what we've done. And neither should we keep recalling it to ourselves in order to gloat over it and think how good I've been. Or, or to preen yourself on how generous or disciplined or conscientious you were in your giving. Christian giving should be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by congratulating oneself inwardly or patting yourself on the back. And even though as wise stewards of our money, we will keep records of the checks we write, and perhaps we'll have to inform our accountant or the inland revenue, but we should still try to give and then forget about it not keep dwelling on it or thinking about it, as the danger is then that our awareness of what we've given may turn into self-congratulation and pride. Of course, giving isn't always in the form of money. Sometimes it comes in the form of time or service or practical help, food or other needed items. But the same thing applies. It doesn't matter if no other person knows what we've given. What does matter is that God knows everything. He knows the secrets of our heart. He sees what we do in secret. And Jesus says in this passage that God will reward us. But the text doesn't say what that spiritual reward will be. Perhaps it will be an increase in righteousness in this life. Perhaps it will be God commending us in the next. I guess more likely it will be the blessing of that real satisfaction deep down when you know that you've helped meet a need, that perhaps the hungry have been fed the naked have been clothed, the sick healed, or the lost saved. Because it is rewarding to see people's needs met. And it helps us understand the truth of what Jesus said when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I guess, like me, we smile along with Jesus and the disciples as he caricatures the Pharisees marching along fanfed by trumpets. But when the spotlight turns on us and we search our hearts and think about our attitudes, can we honestly say we've never exhibited any of those very human tendencies, either to court applause outwardly, or even if we've kept quiet about our giving, have we been quietly smug and self-congratulatory inwardly and applauding ourselves on our self-sacrifice and generosity? As I said before, this passage invites us to search our hearts and come before God in confession and repentance if he shines his light on deep-down tendencies that we've not realized or acknowledged before. Now, the next area Jesus talks about in this call to righteousness in our devotional life is in the matter of prayer. In his day, the Jews were free to pray any time in private prayer, but there were also three set times a day for prayer when they were called to stop what they were doing and pray. Now, this may very well have happened when they were out in public, on the street or in the synagogue, and it was customary to stand to pray. But even so, it could be done discreetly or ostentatiously. And here again, Jesus draws attention to the Hippocrates, the pharisaical play actors who made a great show of their praying, the ones who loved to pray in a pretentious way that drew attention to themselves and their supposed piety. 
And Jesus says of them again, they've already received the reward they were really wanting, that praise and admiration of all those watching them. So they would get no further reward from God. Jesus says to his disciples, however, when you pray, don't do it like that. On the contrary, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Now, lots of houses in those days didn't have lots of inner rooms. The image here is more of a closet or a storeroom or a cupboard where treasures might have been stored. And the implication of this um, verse is that if you went into the closet, you might discover these treasures in your private prayer. And Jesus reminds his disciples again, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Of course, in our busy 21st century lives, it can find, be hard to find a place where you can shut yourself away from noise and distractions. But sometimes we can switch ourselves off from what's going on around us. I remember reading about Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who brought up and educated 13 children at home. And Susanna's house was always noisy and bustling, but she always had her quiet time with God. And she used to sit in the corner with her children playing round her, but she put her apron over her head for an hour a day, and her children soon learnt not to disturb their mum at those times. And so Jesus encourages us here to spend time with God as on our own as we can be too, to have that secret place where it's only him and us even if it's in your toilet or under your apron. Of course, he wasn't saying that other sorts of prayer are inappropriate because Jesus himself prayed in the synagogues. And corporate prayer is important too. But our praying with others should be an outflowing from the time we spend talking to God on our own. And public prayer should still have the quality of a private prayer issuing from the secret place of the heart, not done to impress man, just to connect with God. And this poses a very tricky balance for those of us who have the honour of leading public prayer in worship, whether that's a church service or a prayer meeting or a house group. Because while we're leading people in prayer, we have to craft our words so that people can engage with them and so that they can assent in a hearty amen. But at the same time, our prayers should be uttered from the secret place of our heart and with the sole purpose of glorifying and pleasing God, who alone is our audience. Of course, we should never phrase our prayers in an attempt to impress the other people who are present and praying along. I have to say, our praying this morning was beautiful in that sense. You know, no sense at all of not being from the heart. But uh, sometimes children instinctively get these things right. One Christian mum used to say her prayers, uh, say prayers with her little girl at bedtime, and one night the little girl said that she wanted to do the praying. And she started off in a normal voice and then she got quieter and quieter until eventually only her lips were moving. And eventually she said, Amen. And her mum said to her reproachfully, Darling, I couldn't hear a word you were saying then. But mummy, the little girl replied, I wasn't talking to you. Seriously, I guess we've probably all been conscious at times of being in a prayer group when it seemed as though the one praying was addressing us more than God. And the theologian Carson in his commentary says these words. He says, a man or woman could easily succumb to the temptation to pray up to the audience or congregation. 
using acceptable cliches or appropriate sentiments or sonorous tones, well-pitched fervency, fervency, all become tools to win approval and perhaps compete with the person who led prayer last week. I'm sure that would never happen here, of course. But we do well to keep in mind Jesus' warning that for people who pray like that, in order to gain other people's approval, they may well get that approval and perhaps the applause that they're seeking, but that's all the reward they'll get because God won't be impressed. He looks at our hearts and our true motives. And in our passage, Jesus goes on to highlight another aspect of prayer that doesn't please God. He says, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And the pagan worshippers of those days worshipped all sorts of other gods. So in their prayers, they'd name every god they could think of, and they'd keep repeating phrases or mantras, babbling on with meaningless repetition in the hope of getting their god's attention and manipulating him into doing something. And Jesus says here, Babbling like that is pointless. We don't need to waffle on and on in our prayers to try and manipulate God or to try and impress others. Jesus said God knows us so well, he knows our needs even before we ask. So we don't need to give him information in our prayers. We don't need to tell him what he already knows. And we don't need to twist his arm to persuade him to give us what we want. He just wants us to come to him to express our desires and our needs and our complete dependence on him. A bit like when a little child comes to their mum or dad to ask for something. Even though the parent knows what they're going to ask, it still means a lot to that parent to have the child come and ask. And I think it's like that when we pray to God. And it's true, when we approach God in prayer, we don't need to waffle on and on heaping up phrases and repeating ourselves a lot in the hopes that God will respond, is more likely to respond if we use a lot of words. We can keep our wording simple and brief, as it says in Ecclesiastes 5, um, God is in heaven and you on earth, so let your words be few. And so Jesus goes on to give us some tips and he says, when you pray, pray like this. And he goes on to teach his disciples that short and simple prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And ironically, in a section of scripture that speaks against meaningless repetition, this prayer has come to be one that's repeated in its state, in the written state a lot. But in this context of this passage, talking of meaningless babbling prayers, when we read this prayer, you can see that it is actually a model of succinctness, simple phrases, full of theology and profound meaning. Obviously, it wasn't intended to be recited parrot fashion without thinking about the meaning of what's being said, which sadly, I guess, often does happen. But Jesus said, pray like this. And so we can either pray it from the heart as it stands, word for word, as we often do, or we can use it as a framework or skeleton to build our prayers around in our private or public life, public prayer life. And I'm not going to go into the prayer in great detail today. It really warrants a sermon on its own. And I'm going to skip over verses 14 to 15 too. But if we look at these teachings of Jesus on prayer on their own, we might come to the conclusion that he forbids public prayer and lengthy prayer and repetition in prayer. But when you look at his life in the Gospels, you can see that's really not the case. 
jesus did pray publicly in the synagogues he went off on his own to pray for prolonged periods he did repeat himself in prayer on occasions and he encouraged us to be persistent in prayer so we need to look at his life and teachings as a whole to glean the whole picture and message about when and how to pray but as you we've already seen in this particular passage he's focusing particularly on ostentatious prayer and meaningless babbling those sorts of prayer designed to impress men rather than god and then in the final section he addresses the practice of fasting now fasting is that spiritual discipline that involves denying our physical appetites for a particular period of time in the jewish calendar there were times when everyone was called to fast and other times when individuals chose to fast for self-discipline as a sign of repentance before God or to accompany a particular prayer request. Traditionally, fasting means going without food for a while, and that's why the first meal of our day is called breakfast, literally break fast, breaking the fast that we have taken during the nighttime hours from eating. However, it is possible to fast from any activity which takes up time and attention in our lives so that we can concentrate the time on prayer or sharpen up our praying, or maybe even just deny our bodies for a while so that our physical desires don't control us and all we do. So today, if people are fasting, they might choose to abstain from food or sex or TV or computer games or Facebook or novel reading, perhaps. There's lots of things we can fast from. But Jesus says here again, when you fast, not if you fast showing that he expected that fasting would be a normal part of his spiritual, disciples' spiritual practice, just as it was a normal part of Jewish spiritual practice. And again, he refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites during their fasting, as they effectively advertised to everyone around that they were fasting to impress other people and make others think how spiritual and pious they were. So they let their hair and beards become unkempt. They smeared their faces with ashes. They looked miserable and generally let themselves go. And Jesus says here that the Pharisees did all this for applause and admiration from others. And as that was what they really wanted, that was the reward they would get. God would not be impressed. So Jesus says Christian disciples should not follow the Pharisees' example. When Christians fast, it should be between them and God. So during any sort of fast, their outward appearance should be no different to what it was normally. If they were fasting, they should wash their faces and keep tidy and anoint themselves with oil and lotions as they normally did. And the fact that they were fasting should be done in secret. And then God, who sees what is done in secret, would reward them. And that applied to Jesus' disciples then. And it applies to us, his disciples, today. Sadly, for the Pharisees, what had begun as a genuine act of spiritual self-discipline had degenerated into an act of pompous self-righteousness. And that can so easily happen to us if we're not careful. We start doing something to please God, and then somehow we find we're doing that same thing in an exaggerated fashion to impress other people. For example, years ago, People dressed up in their Sunday best for church as a sign of reverence to God. And then gradually the quality of the clothes they were wearing and their outfits started to be more important than the reverence. And people started competing to be the smartest. 
So then another generation rejected all this and they decided, as God looks on the heart, it doesn't really matter what we wear to church on the outside. So they started wearing casual clothes to church. And another example that has happened is that as people bring their Bibles to church to help them look up passages, it's a good thing. And carrying a Bible can also be a witness to your faith, an opportunity to start a conversation about Jesus. But it can also degenerate into showing off your piety, especially when people start to carry particularly big Bibles around with them. You might be thinking the bigger the Bible, the more spiritual person. And talking about your devotional life is another example. Okay, you might want to share some wonderful insight or revelation that God has given you in your quiet time, and that's great. But it's not so great in God's eyes if really your inner motive for sharing was that you actually wanted to boast a little, to show off a bit how spiritual and pious you are. In all our religious observances, we need to search our hearts to ask ourselves honestly, who am I trying to please in doing these things? And as we search our hearts and motives in all our devotional practices and endeavours, God's Holy Spirit may shine his light on some truths we didn't want to admit, showing perhaps we weren't doing these things solely to please God, but perhaps a small part of our motivation may have been about trying to impress other people, to make ourselves look good, or to boost our ego. And of course, we can repent and we can put these things right. And God promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we're truly repentant. And if we return to that discipline of doing these things secretly, of praying and giving and fasting quietly without telling others, not doing them to impress or otherwise advertising them to anyone else, then we can be sure that God will be pleased with us, that he will draw us closer to him. And our piety and our righteousness will then become that genuine, attractive and transparent quality that God desires in his children. And my prayer for us all is that God will help us in all these matters, that he will cleanse our motives and purify all our hearts as we seek to be obedient to his will and to grow in righteousness so that we will all demonstrate that right relationship with a righteous God which is shown in right living, which reflects God's character. Just before I close, something came to me this morning that I really felt God wanted me to add today. And uh, it ties up with the pastoral visit I did yesterday. And uh, we've talked today about the Pharisees being hypocrites, about actors playing a role and wearing a mask disguising what was really going on in their hearts. And in that passage, it was talking, as we know, about praying and giving and fasting. But it struck me, especially after talking to this lady yesterday, that um, we all often put on a mask, don't we? And to disguise what's going on in our hearts. And it's, sometimes it's not about putting on a mask to make ourselves look spiritual sometimes it's putting on a mask to show to pretend to others that actually we're okay when really we're struggling inside sometimes we're putting on a mask to pretend that we're confident and assured when really we're quaking with nerves sometimes we're pretending we're happy and jolly and the life and soul of the party when really our hearts are aching 
perhaps we're struggling with sadness or loneliness, or we're worried about what the future might hold. This lady I visited yesterday was talking to me about that, and we've talked about it many times, about the fact that she puts on a mask to hide from others what's really going on in her heart. And I really encouraged her to try and be real and honest with her church family, not just with me. And that people wouldn't think badly of her if she shared what was really going on. And I just wanted to say, if that's you today, and you're playing a part to your church family and not really telling them what's going on if you're struggling with stuff, then I do encourage you to take off the mask and to be real and honest and tell people how you feel or how you are when they say, how are you? And ask them to pray for you because God does know what's going on in your heart anyway and he's called us together to be there for one another. Your church family cares about you. So if that is you, take off the mask, stop playing the role and be real. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the riches contained within it. We thank you for the ways, the different ways that you speak to us. And we invite you now to shine a light into our hearts, to show us where perhaps we've been playing a part, to show us when perhaps we haven't been genuine or honest with people, to show us when perhaps we might even have been trying to put on that mask of being really spiritual and pious when you know that perhaps the truth is somewhat different than that. Lord, I want to pray for everyone gathered here that you would help us to be honest before you and honest before each other. That you would help us to be real with one another and not to be ashamed of who we are. Because you know us through and through, Lord. You know our hearts. You know the things we struggle with. And you have called us together to be there for one another. So I pray for your blessing to rest on each one of us, that you will encourage us through this word today, not help us, not let us feel condemned, but encourage us. Please bring us to repentance if that's what we need, Lord. But build us up too and enable us to be true disciples for you who really demonstrate righteousness in all that we do and all that we say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.